Our readings this morning are from Isaiah, Revelation, and the Gospel of Matthew. So we begin with Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 9, and you can find that on your pew, in your pew Bibles on page 742. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land, young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Kedah's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar, and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along the clouds like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold. To the honour of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendour. A reading from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 8, can be found on your pew Bibles on page 1252. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. And our third reading this morning is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. And you can read that on your, in your pew Bibles on page 979. Matthew, chapter 13, verse 31. He that is Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to be with you uh, and to see a number of new faces. Uh, to introduce myself, Chris Johnson, I'm the senior minister here, and um, it's my privilege to bring the message this morning. And so uh, we're coming to the end of six weeks where we've been looking at this book, The Air We Breathe, a book by Glenn Scrivener that looks at a number of values that are there in our culture, but we probably don't understand how they're rooted in the biblical witness, but then also in the historical development of the church uh, and its influence in society over all those centuries down to our own. Uh, so we've been looking at this over the last six weeks and haven't they flown? Uh, for me, they've flown, which usually means you're having a good time. So I hope you're having a good time in this uh, series as much as I am as we come now to the final one. There was a pilot who got onto his PA system to the passengers and said to them, I've got some good news and some bad news. Firstly, the bad news. The navigation system's gone down. 
We're not sure of our altitude, our wind speed, or the direction we're heading. But the good news is that we're right on time and we're making great progress. <laughs> and it seems to me that that's a little bit of a commentary on our society today. We're basically lost, but we're making great progress. And so our topic this morning, progress. The first thing we need to do is understand what we mean by that word because you can think of progress in all sorts of ways, can't you? So how does Glenn Scribner define progress? Well, oh no, firstly, let's think of the, the, the number of ways we can think of it. Um, there is material progress. For example, the gross domestic product of a country, if it's sort of rising each year, you feel like we're making progress, material progress. There's technological progress. Uh, how much more memory and computing power does your new computer have compared with your old one? Uh, we're making technological progress. There's personal progress. Maybe in your career you get a promotion. Or with family, there's the birth of a child or a grandchild. And we think of that as progress. So there's so many ways we can think about it, isn't it? But how does Glenn Scribner address it? Well, he defines it as moral progress. And he begins with this quote from uh, the Reverend Theodore Parker, who was a 19th century anti-slave campaigner. And he said this, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so we like to think of it in terms of uh, more justice in the world, uh, more moral improvement in the world, that somehow there's some progress the Reverend Martin Luther King picked up that quote and he used it to promote the civil rights movement in America in the, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, that we're in a moral universe and it bends towards justice. So that especially applies to progress in terms of racism, of course, but it also applies to any moral issue and, in fact, to all of the values that we've been looking at in this series we would like to think that our society is making progress in terms of equality, compassion, consent, science and freedom. You often hear the accusation in arguing for a moral position on any one of these values that you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Have you heard that little phrase? And this assumes, of course, that history is heading somewhere and somewhere better. But we don't want future generations to judge us and we've been found on the, the wrong side of the issue. We want to be part of the progress that is making things better. So let's turn to the Bible and see what it has to say. Uh, theologians, sometimes when talking about the Bible, use the phrase progressive revelation. And by this they mean that God didn't give us the complete story at one time in one place... No, he let it unfold over a number of centuries with a number of people in a number of places. The story of redemption is hinted at in Genesis 1 to 11, but the launching pad really comes in Genesis 12 with the call of Abraham. From this one man, a nation will be formed which God will use to show himself to the world, not just to that nation, but in fact to the world. So firstly, we've got Abraham and his immediate family, called the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Their stories are there in Genesis. 
We then have the great lawgiver, Moses, and the story of the Exodus. And we're going to be delving into that in a lot more detail in our next series. I hope you look forward to that. Uh, but with the Exodus, of course, also the giving of the law. And we can read all about that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Then we have the judges who rule for a time. You might think of Samson or Deborah or Gideon. And if you want to get into them, there's a lovely book that's just been put out by Peter and you can uh, line up in front of him afterwards and, and uh, get into the judges. Next is the reign of the kings. We have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And this is a high point in the nation's life. But then a multitude of kings who go bad and the nation is taken into exile. But God raises up prophets to explain that to the people, to explain the reason they're in exile is that they have disobeyed God, broken his covenant, and this is God's judgment on their sin. But the prophets also bring hope that God will send a Messiah, a saviour, and there'll be a new age of God's rule and God's reign. And so the prophets also preach hope. And so the Old Testament, you see, everything is progressing towards this great day of the Lord, the day of the Messiah. Hist they believed history was leading to this climactic end where there would be a new age with the Messiah ruling his people in righteousness and peace. Scrivener says this, he says, It was the Bible which proclaimed a unique view of history, not a cycle but an arrow pointing onwards and upwards. And so we come to the New Testament and, of course, the arrival of Messiah Jesus, who brought in this new age of the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about a kingdom that would progress. Uh, that reading from Matthew this morning, we see the image of the mustard seed in the image of the yeast. The kingdom of heaven, he said, is like a mustard seed. It's the tiniest of seeds. It seems insignificant. But then it grows into a tree, a great tree, where birds can come and make their nest. And then yeast. It takes time for the yeast to be worked in through the whole of the dough. But uh, over that time, it, uh, it does its job. And it can cause the bread to rise. And, of course, the image of fresh bread rising in the oven is a beautiful image, isn't it? Uh, you can almost taste it as you smell it, the lovely aroma coming uh, of what's uh, coming. And so these are images, you see, of growth and of progress. You know, Jesus' movement had no right to succeed. It really didn't. Jesus was a penniless preacher dependent on others for support. He never wrote a book had any educational qualifications. He never entered politics or the military. And yet he gave teaching like this, which showed he was confident that just a pinch of yeast, just a pinch of yeast, can make a big difference. Teaching that uh, predicted that as just like a small seed, uh, that a small seed could end up growing into a large tree. And this, these are pictures of his movement. And the amazing thing is that these are not just nice stories with appealing metaphors. These are prophecies which, against all the odds, have come true. We have seen the gospel going out in all the world and uh, making a big difference. Elsewhere, in uh, John 12, Jesus says this. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... 
it bears much fruit. See, not only was Jesus' life insignificant, but his death was insignificant as well. A shameful, forgettable death. How many other people who were crucified in the Roman Empire do you know and still remember today? Thousands were crucified. But we don't remember any of them, do we? Why do we remember Jesus? Well, I think the only explanation can be his resurrection. <laughs> you see, that's what transformed the disciples from frightened cowards into brave disciples who went out and took on the world in his resurrection. I was listening to uh, another sermon by Glenn Scribner this week, and he talked about the power of an apple seed. And he said, a little apple seed, it's tiny and insignificant, but it actually has the potential in that little seed to feed the world feed the world if you plant it and you get an apple tree it grows lots of apples and what's inside each of those apples seeds and if they fall to the ground and they plant more trees more apples and there's an exponential way that can just grow uh, and indeed has the potential to feed the world and you see Jesus life is like that little seed just one little life at one particular point in time and yet all the potential in that life, as it dies on the cross, as he gives himself up in sacrifice and obedience. He uh, dies an ignominious death that uh, is like the seed dying in the ground, but then it's raised up and it grows exponentially. And so it has produced fruit, fruit that has uh, gone throughout all the world. And so there are disciples now in, the, in a multitude of nations who follow Jesus there is the fruit of good values that have permeated many societies and made a big difference. Our church here at Noosa Anglican, uh, we're part of this Jesus movement. We're part of this Jesus revolution. And we've set ourselves a vision of living to love and proclaim Jesus. Do you know our vision? You see it every, here every Sunday? Living to love and proclaim Jesus. We want to be part of the revolution. Uh, part of this growing, expanding kingdom of God. And so we go out from here and we seek to plant gospel seeds in people's lives. And we pray for those people. We pray for the seeds to germinate. And we look for signs of the new life of the kingdom uh, as we indeed go out with that gospel, that good news. And we want to see new disciples coming into the kingdom. Uh, we want to be like that yeast worked into the dough. And this is about working these Christian values out into our society. Uh, I hope by reading Glenn Scrivener uh, that you have a much greater appreciation of the social impact, not just in individual lives, but the social impact of the gospel in our world. Uh, and that it encourages you to keep working uh, for that kingdom. Uh, to take shape in our, uh, our society, in our culture. In Vision 26, uh, we have four values. Uh, and I hope you're familiar with these. Christ-centred, Bible-based, Spirit-led and mission-shaped. And I think that's really a foundation for the six values that Scribner talks about in his book. Because, you see, it's Christ who... Uh, in his teaching, gives us the groundwork for these values of equality, of compassion, consent, science, freedom 
and progress. And that's what we've, I hope you've seen that over the six weeks, that uh, what Jesus taught uh, in his gospel has actually been the foundation for progress in each of those areas. And it's in the Bible, of course, that we find Christ's teaching. And so we're Bible-based. We go back to that all the time, our foundation document. Uh, Christians down through the centuries have been led by the Spirit to apply the Bible in their time and place to bring these values to bear. And so we have to be led by the Spirit in our day uh, to take these values and apply them in our time and space, place as well. And so we need to be led by the Spirit uh, in his mission today. And then finally, we are to be mission-shaped. And that means we want to make a difference in the world. We want these values to shape our world and bring blessing to others. And so we go out in mission. My friends, we need to renew our commitment to Vision 26 if we really want to be part of this uh, Jesus revolution. If we really want people to come to live in, living to love and proclaim Jesus, uh, we need to recommit uh, and be... Uh, true to our values. Now, you, I don't know if you've noticed this, but uh, I think it's getting increasingly difficult to actually stand up and be a Jesus person in our world today. It's like these values, which have Christian roots, have been hijacked and taken in new directions by opinion leaders in our society today who do not claim to be Christians. <coughs> Think uh, about the value of compassion, for example. The parable of the Good Samaritan is about showing compassion to a victim, no matter who they are, no matter how different they are from you, of race or of values or whatever. If uh, they're in a hard place, uh, the call of the Christian gospel is to show compassion. Well, Scrivener says that we have now moved somewhat from the understanding of that parable to what sociologists call competitive victimhood. Everybody wants to be a victim in order to gain advantage over others. And the danger nowadays is that our chief desire is not to help victims, but to become one. Which is sort of like the opposite to the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? Scrivener gives this example. He, he notes the clash between feminists and trans rights activists. Feminists claim that oppression of women makes them the victims, whereas trans rights activists believe trans people are the victims. And have you noticed in the media uh, the, the debate and clash that's going on there? We've divorced the value of compassion from its Christian roots. One thing I think we can learn as Christians about this is to not play the victim card, to not see ourselves as victims and we've got to try and hold on to our little bit of ground and uh, gain advantage somehow for ourselves. Our stance should be one of reaching out to those who are truly victims and uh, gaining more ground for them, showing them the compassion and expanding their territory uh, uh, in true Christian compassion after the manner of the Samar Good Samaritan. Scribner says the underlying problem in all this is that people want a kingdom without the king. The kingdom without the king. They want all the benefits of the kingdom without living under the jurisdiction of the king. 
And so people start redefining these terms to suit themselves rather than the way Jesus defines them in his kingdom teaching. And so we end up with a radical individualism with everyone doing what they think is right in their own eyes. And that the Bible talks about that. Everybody just doing what they think is right in their own eyes and somehow thinking that this is going to build a more compassionate, enlightened, free society, which, of course, it doesn't. It takes it in the other direction. It used to be that people thought that, look, if we got rid of God, we'd get rid of morality. We'd get rid of these concepts of guilt and shame. They would just disappear, just, you know, push God out. But you know what? As people have pushed God out, it's done exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Today... We live in a world where guilt and shame are more prominent than ever. And forgiveness has gone missing because you need the king <laughs> to find the forgiveness. And people want to lock him out. Scrivener says this. Uh, it's a long quote, but I think it's a good one which sums it up well. He says, In order to pursue the kingdom without the king, we've had to dethrone the person of Christ and install abstract values instead. The problem should be obvious. Persons can forgive you, values cannot. Values can only judge you. The kingdom without the king is not a place of liberation so much as a place of judgment. But in, the, in this democratic republic, we are all judges and we are all the judged. We desperately need a person above and beyond the values a person who does not simply expect our best, but also forgives our worst. And it's about recognising the worst is in every single one of us. And we all need that king and his forgiveness. And so, my friends, we need a king like Jesus who can set the highest value system that has ever been known, but one who can also forgive us when we fail to reach it. I hope this series has, has helped you to see how powerful the gospel is. Powerful not just to change an individual's life, but powerful to change whole communities, whole societies. Uh, I hope you are encouraged to be part of the Jesus Revolution. Uh, I want to sum it up by actually coming back to Glenn Scribner um, because he gives a really good summary in his final chapter, it's a summary of the difference that Christianity has made uh, concerning these values. On page 196, this is what he's going through each of the values. Uh, this is what he says. He says, consider equality. Once steep moral hierarchies were the norm. Now we want to root out inequalities wherever we find them. Consider compassion. Once pity for the undeserving was considered a weakness. Now we consider it a virtue. Consider consent. Once powerful men could possess the bodies of whomever they pleased. Now we name this as the abuse that it is. Consider science. Once knowledge of the natural world was based on the assertion of authorities. Now we hold the powerful to account and we seek to test such claims against objective standards. Consider freedom. Once it was assumed that certain classes of people could be enslaved, 
Now we consider that kind of idea a blasphemy. Consider progress. Once history was thought of as descended from a golden age, now we feel that the arc of history bends or should bend towards justice. My friends, the seed of the gospel has borne much fruit, much fruit. The yeast of the gospel has been kneaded into the dough and it's done its good work. But there is an enemy out there that is seeking to undermine these values, to redirect them. We need to do all in our power uh, to hold on to these values, to be promoting them in our community, promoting them the way Jesus defined them. But not just promoting kingdom values, but promoting the king reigning in his kingdom. Amen.